This is the IHS Market Furticon Fertilizer Podcast. The following episode of Urea Never Sleeps was recorded on May 29, 2020. Welcome, everyone, to another uh, edition of Urea Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your co-host, Carl Stenerson, a Urea analyst at Furticon with IHS Market. And as always, I'm joined here with my colleague, Elfie Middlebeek. Uh, how you doing, Elfie? I'm really well, Carl. Yeah, I'm Elfie Middlebeek. I'm also a Urea analyst, a senior Urea analyst at Furticon. IHS Market, yes, all well, just, you know, as everyone still at the home office uh, here but uh, I'm usually at the home office though right but uh, it's it's pretty good and you know it's uh, it's 24 degrees uh, Celsius in uh, in Newcastle today which you know if it's 24 in Newcastle which is I guess in Fahrenheit oof, I'm so bad at the Fahrenheit is it like 75 or something but yeah, it's nice. And you know, when it's warm here, then you know that basically everywhere in Europe, it's it's way warmer. So, <laughs> so we enjoy it. We make the most of it as far as we're allowed anyway. But um, how are things over there? I mean, Twin Cities obviously in the news quite a bit at the moment. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Um, definitely not a, you know, fun situation. It's pretty serious, but, uh, you know, my family and kind of the area we live in everything is good so just kind of you know hoping things get better from here but everything is is safe so there's there's that positive good well that's the main thing that you guys are all safe and uh yeah so but no for the pod today i mean obviously we have a really have a jam-packed program today i mean we've got uh, our first guest speaker which is pretty exciting right um, so we have Brianne Doherty, who is um, an executive director within our energy and natural resources arm of IHS market, who focuses uh, on the financial and capital markets side. And we talk about the natural gas outlook uh, with her. So that's pretty interesting, of course, at the moment, um, you know, as, as we've seen the um, pandemic really hit all the commodities pretty hard. So, of course, feedstock uh, costs are very much on topic um, on the urea side. And then we also, of course, have our new fancy regular feature, which is called Project of the Month, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I like all the structure we've got going on here, and I think everyone's going to really enjoy the the interview with Brianne, uh, super enlightening stuff um, and interesting, interesting implications for the nitrogen market this year and, and pro- probably into next year as well. But yeah, before maybe we get into those things, we'll just kind of do our usual roundup of kind of the short term urea market. Selfie, what do you think? Yeah, so basically, of course, we um, we tend to always plan these podcasts exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we're recording this. Yeah, we're recording this on the 29th of May, Friday. Um, by the time this gets out, you know, gets edited and pushed out, I would expect that India will probably have announced another tender, as that always seems to happen when we uh, record these po- podcasts. Do you think that'll be the case this time? Yes, I think it's very likely. Um, I mean, um, especially because I think sales have been running 
really well, better than than we even thought. I mean, we're looking at May sales uh, up to the 28th uh, uh, on the um, direct benefit transfer system show 1.7 million tons, um, which compares to 1.1 million tons this time last year for May. So, yeah, no, even on the same expectations, we were expecting like a end of August S&D balance of, of minus 1.1 million tons before uh, the next tender, basically. So we were already expecting that they, they would need like a million tons uh, at least. But now, I mean, I would think that it would have to be maybe 1.5 million tons. Of course, we have to see what happens. But of course, August is such a big month, right? I mean, last year, I think it was 4.67 million tons domestic sales. So um obviously they may need to make sure you know if it's full july shipment which is what we're expecting then they need to make sure they've got it uh in the states and in the in the the right places um where they're going to see the sales um so of course it also depends on the monsoon um what we're hearing is that there's a normal uh average monsoon expected and 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 normally it starts i think on the first of june and again the india meteorological department has um, come out with a statement uh yesterday i believe to say that they're also expecting it the first or the second of june so very uh over kerala that is um so it seems to be a very similar uh, pattern what they're expecting to last year. So kind of maybe June a little bit below uh, normal rainfall levels. July seems to more dry spells and then excess rain in, in August and September. Of course, this can change and we'll have to keep a close eye on, on what happens with the monsoon. But, you know, so this suggests again that for, for August we could see some really uh, strong sales again. So, um, yeah, I mean, we have to see uh of course in terms of pricing i mean the last last tender as well in terms of where uh, the tons were coming from the last tender i think what was a real positive so the last tender was on the 30th of no that was the one before not 30th of march it was the 7th of may because of that uh, it was quite a positive for the market and since then as well we've seen uh, china really hold on to prices sort of 230 235 fob uh, lowest and also i mean this week we saw indonesia um, able to to sell at the 233 234 uh, fob for grana and prills so um, really i mean in the next standard the, the big question is going to be china um, you know, the domestic season is still running at the moment. And like I said, they are holding on to these um, these prices so far. But um, as me and you have talked about before, we, we are seeing the production run uh, quite high, right? I mean, what's 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 your view? What do you think in terms of Chinese exports in the next tender? Yeah, um, maybe going back real quick on kind of the, yeah, of the India's supply and demand situation i think you, um there's a lot of you know good points in there so so basically everything seems to be pointing towards pretty good demand import demand from india over the next you know couple of months especially in this next tender um for those reasons that you stated um just wanted to touch on like kind of the april may domestic sales in india and how strong they've been i don't know how much of that's due to kind of early season buying from uh, kind of farmers due to kind of the coronavirus and, and worries about kind of logistics and all those things. So I think that that is part of it um, that's led to some earlier than normal buying patterns. So I'm not sure how much that will affect later sales, um, but it's one thing to think about uh, because otherwise there's not a, not a big reason for, for these kind of record 
sales yeah. levels in April and May to continue. I think that was more of a result, part of it's at least a result of the kind of a change in buying patterns. But um, and then just on the production front for India, the coronavirus, as we've kind of talked about, did seem to affect production rates maybe a little bit in in April and March. Is that right? But now we're basically yeah. expecting production to be normalized, you know, 2 million tons a month. I think it really only may have been impacted, you know, maybe 100,000 or 200,000 tons in April and, and March. But um, it's it's hard to say because it, there really wasn't a huge impact. And those kind of differences in monthly output are pretty, pretty regular. So there's that's a pretty regular swing. Um, so it's hard to say exactly what the, the impact was, but kind of moving forward, it does seem to be that there won't be much impact on domestic India production because of the um, the coronavirus restrictions. So yeah, touching on those things for, for the picture of India, like you said, should be pretty big demand. And, and the big question will be Chinese participation. You know, like you said, I don't I don't know how much they'll they'll send in this one. And I think it'll be kind of minimal like the last one, because, you know, if they're if China's holding on to prices at 230 a metric, um, that's a lot higher than what we're seeing in, you know, the Black Sea and the Middle East and even kind of North Africa. So and with freight rates as low as they are, I think it'll be kind of the Black Sea tons and the Middle East tons that'll set a lower kind of the the lower end of the um, L1 price. And I'm just not sure if, if China's really going to be competitive this time around with their current FOB levels. So either they'll have to drop their price to accept, you know, lower prices or they just won't send very much tons this time. And that should be kind of supportive for the market. But what it, what's really happening, it seems, is that the market doesn't want those Chinese tons uh, coming out of China. It doesn't really need it. There's not the demand for it. So as long as we kind of keep prices low enough, we won't see those tons. But but it really is what it's doing is putting a very firm ceiling on the market, whatever China's FOB levels are. So I think we can continue to kind of see some stable to firm prices here in the short term based on where China's FOB levels are and, and considering this India tender. But uh, th- there's really no scenario for a, a full-on, you know, a bullish picture because if if prices go too high we'll just see see those tons come out of china and like you'd mentioned the, the operating rates are high you know we're hearing you know around 160,000 tons a day a little bit over that which pencils out to you know close to 60 million tons a year so and we don't expect domestic demand to be uh, near 60 million tons this year so there seems to be probably plenty of availability there if the price works out but again in the short term uh, it doesn't seem like the the FOB prices in China will really work for for India this time around much like last time so I'm kind of expecting to see to see minimal participation from from China in this one yeah no that definitely it's uh, it's it's interesting in terms of the price dynamics because i mean the other question of course with with india like you say covid i mean what we did see of course in the last tender is that um even though uh, they had uh, acceptance of of the counter offer uh, of of 787000 they in the end only bought 629 and that was um 
that was a lot to do with you know the warehouses in in the ports on the eastern side still having uh, too much product there um, because there was also still product on en route for the east coast because obviously obviously in the tender before that they bought more for the east coast right and then also what we were hearing is that initially uh, a lot of people in the lockdown in India were sort of staying put in terms of the uh, migrant workers but since then we've heard that obviously the situation has gotten worse and so a lot of them have sort of decided to um, to head home. So uh, that's also a big question mark. I mean, China, or sorry, India, of course, the situation there with COVID uh, was also seems to be worsening. So we do have to keep a close eye on, on what that means in terms of logistics. So it might be, like you say, mm-hmm. those um, domestic sales that could have well have been something to do with that and, and might have actually been a, a clever by those actually purchasing tons sooner if we do end up with some logistical issues. Um, uh, but um, in terms of, of China, I guess the, also the other question is the, the currency, right? I mean, if we if we do see, for whatever reason, a devaluation of the renminbi, then I think perhaps we will see some more uh, uh, Chinese exports. And, and, and of course, they'll be able to keep the price sort of at similar levels on an RMB basis. But, then, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So, yeah. That can change so, things day to day. Exactly. So that's that's something to keep an eye on. But yeah, I mean, I would think the thing with India, and especially this time of the year, right, we have no, you know, European season, we've got no US seasons over. So I would always think that India in general, in the last, however long I can remember, in the last few years, at least, it's been sort of highest paying market, right? So everybody wants to direct the tons there anyway. And I would think with, like I say, this this time in the season, I would think that, um, especially with Eugenie, all the production running there, I would think that there's a lot of competition for tons, even without China. I mean, the AG, yeah. obviously, Egypt, we saw obviously a few uh, cargoes moving there last time, which obviously is, is good for the Egyptians, because if they if they already have uh, tons placed into India, then that means they can, um, you know, make it more difficult for and therefore keep prices higher for, for those trying to buy tons for Egypt or for, for Europe um, in terms of uh, bits of forward sales or, um, or to, to cover any other short so they can kind of drive a harder bargain there so so yeah I mean I think it's uh, it'll be a really interesting tender in in that respect to to really show the direction of the market because at the moment it's like you say because we don't need those Chinese exports anyway we haven't really seen a huge um, huge discounts recently things sort of broadly stabilize. I mean, sort of step down a bit in, in, in certain markets, but definitely in other markets, we've seen sort of traders with shorts getting caught out, right? Like in Egypt and recently in the, in the Baltic. So it's definitely, um, yeah, it should give some some answers also in terms of how much supply is really there. I mean, how desperate are people um, should be good. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting tender for sure. Um, and and another thing to kind of transition into our uh, interview with Brianne coming up here, we've seen you know a lot of presence out of the Black Sea and and Eugenie and and uh, Ukraine in particular with you know all three producers uh, or Chikasi, OPZ and Dnipro. Do am I saying that right? Um, you know all producing and exporting. So they're they're just having a lot bigger export presence uh, this year than they have in over the past kind of two years um, and a lot of that has to do with the 
the low gas prices in in Europe. So we've seen the TTF below the Henry Hub now. And you know what's what's also just going to be interesting is is to see if that that continues to be the case because we could see a kind of re- resurgence of of exports um, out of that that Black Sea area and and just Eastern Europe in general. You know, with that, maybe we should uh, cut into the to the interview unless there was anything else you wanted to say, Alfie. No, let's go for it. Okay, so we're very excited here this afternoon because we have a guest speaker on, Brianne Doherty, who is the uh, executive director at the financial and capital markets side of of IHS Markets. So first of all, uh, Brianne, thank you so much for making time for us. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, no, it's great to, uh, we haven't actually had a guest on our pod before, so it's very exciting. (laughs) Well, hopefully I don't make you change your mind after. I'm sure you won't. Um, so in the podcast, pretty much what we what we normally tend to look at is is trends in the global urea market. So w- when we're looking at feedstock for urea, 60% of that is natural gas. And that's why it is such a hot topic uh, in the market. And of course, recently we've seen natural gas prices move down across the globe with gas future prices in, um, in Europe dipping below the $2 per MMBTU. And this has really led to a lot of people on the rear market speculating about the outlook. And um, so really the main question we, we would like to ask you is what are you kind of seeing in terms of, of the forecast of, of global natural gas prices sort of in the short term? Well, in the short term, we basically see a continuance of what we have been seeing over the last couple of months. The the collapse that we've seen within the spreads of global gas prices and the absolute decrease in prices in general, as you mentioned, on the $2 uh, prem and BTU handle in Europe and down in the U.S., obviously, we're down to more of the $1.70 uh, to $1.80 type range. And um, we expect that to continue, particularly through the end of summer 2020. Now, what's interesting about that is actually as we move into the July, August time period, normally a time period where you can sometimes see a little bit of upside on natural gas prices because of power power generation related demand in both North America and and obviously in Europe because of the, the weather that persists in peak summer, we actually see a lot of weakness coming in in Q3. A lot of that has to do with the general position of storage in Europe, and we actually are predicting that we could be hitting some maximum capacity type um, levels be much before the end of summer, and that puts additional downside price pressure, and that can be trickling through quite dramatically in Q3. The the ultimate effect of that is a feedback loop, because um, for those of you who don't follow the gas market too much, now we have North America linked into Europe via LNG exports. And the feedback implications of that weakness in Europe is going to be obviously a pushback on LNG supply from the US, because what you're going to do is you're going to drop your price in order to reduce the amount of supply that's going to try to come to your market. And that's going to keep more LNG at home in the United States, which again puts downside pressure on the U.S. prices. So in general, we see uh, we are bearish to the forward curves of both Henry Hub and TTF. And um, we expect that to persist at least through the end of summer. Come winter, uh, you know, the storage can change. The story can change a little bit because you have a reset once we sort of start that winter heating season and in general get that uptick in demand that comes with it. That being said, moving into the winter 2020 and 2021 in Europe, especially with the full capacity storage situation and low pricing dynamics, um, we, we do think that there's probably a bit more bearish 
count to um, at least the start of winter, then there would not be bullish relative to the curve. Yeah, that, that sounds really interesting. So pretty much you're saying the storage situation is going to be uh, sort of mean that it's it's going to Q3 looks really bad, um, which of course, like you say, July, August is normally not the best time in general, right, for um, for gas prices. And then, um, like you say, I mean, that then is a feedback loop back into the US. So what would you say would be kind of the the bottom of the market then if we're already at the in the US at 1.7 per MMBTU? Oh, calling a bottom. That's 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 a pretty impossible <laughs> task. Um, you know, I think that that's really we're sort of in unprecedented times right now because we haven't had this dynamic. The, the growth of LNG exports out of the U.S. over the last 18 months in particular is really what has connected the markets. And we haven't had this dynamic before. So it, it is a bit of a watch and see as to how that evolves and uh, the timing of price responses, because naturally you have to con you have to cancel contracts on LNG cargos uh, with at least a you know 40 to 60 day lag. And so the lag effects of these price dynamics um, can really skew the way the, the front of the prices look. The in the US, I mean, when we say you start chasing a bottom, the bottom can be very low. You can go down to a dollar. That probably wouldn't be something we'd see in Q3. That would be something that we'd probably expect to see if there was more of a storage con constraint issue that would potentially appear at the very end of the injection season, like in around the October time period. Um, I wouldn't expect that as much in Q3. But uh, in Europe, what we'd expect is we'd, we'd probably expect a further collapse of um, the spread, which is already negative on the front part of the curve. So right now, TTF prices actually for June and July are pricing all the way through August, actually, are pricing below that of Henry Hub. It's unusual, um, but it is Europe giving the signal that we do not want to take any additional supply and, um, and again, canceling these contracts. So we would expect downside on Henry Hub to come and, you know, that can go as low as the dollar sixty dollar fifty level um and the question is whether or not ttf would chase it down given the dynamics right now and the potential for storage uh capacity constraints within europe as we progress into that july august time period there there isn't really much um that can that can stop it from slipping down along with henry hub but uh you know calling calling a floor i think it's a precarious position at this point i i just wouldn't um be getting too bullish on prices right now and i'd be actually even cautious of some of the uptick that is currently in the curve that uh naturally appears in the november december time period you'll notice that the ttf prices there's a giant jump between october and november what we are looking at most closely right now is whether or not that's a plausible jump um considering some of the overhang that we might have in fundamentals uh across that time period thanks brianne yeah that's all really interesting so um kind of going back talking more about those spreads so um you know in europe in 2018 in the second half we saw you know really high gas costs there and that turned a lot of the producers uh the nitrogen producers that is into kind of marginal marginal producers and we actually saw a lot of production um kind of scale back for for your reproducers in in europe and ukraine and and now we've basically seen, like you said, that spread is completely reversed in between the U.S. and Europe, to where now those producers in in Western Europe are are as competitive or more competitive, you know, if they're just buying spot than the U.S. Um, 
I guess my question, and and actually we're seeing you know more production for for urea come back on stream in some of these Eastern European countries and and Ukraine especially. Um, but so my question would be, I mean, do you expect that spread to kind of normalize um, back where you know there's a few dollars in between the Henry Hub and kind of the Western uh, European hub prices? And and like what's kind of the the timeline? Like how how quickly or or how long could that take? Yeah, the the spread conversation is so interesting because one of the and I'll I'll try to give a a quick synopsis of it and be as simple as possible with it because otherwise we can head down the rabbit hole talking about uh, North American natural gas supply dynamics. But um, what is interesting is we actually see a lot of bullish and upside, which we would classify as upside price pressure coming into North America um, as early as the start of winter 2020, 2021. So in that you know kind of November, December time period, because what is a very interesting dynamic is the crash in oil prices is taking a significant amount of oil production out of North America off the stack. And so we have producers reducing the amount of CapEx they're spending, right? And so that should bring production out of the system. The a huge proportion of the natural gas production growth in North America is actually coming courtesy of oil production. It's called associated gas. And as oil production goes down, associated gas production will go down. So we actually see a lot of um, price constructive things happening within North America going into 2021 as the North American market will start to battle these production declines that are being that are courtesy of oil price and don't really have anything to do with natural gas price. And those dynamics mean that we actually have a very um, strong natural gas price for North America in 2021, a price of 350. And um, that would be obviously much stronger than we saw this year and even the last few years. And to be honest, having a sustained price over $3 in a price outlook um, it's been you know over five years probably where a lot of individuals have thought that so we see a very constructive story coming in north america in 2021 based off of the supply feedback loop that's happening because of the low oil prices now translating that into the global spread conversation this is where things get um a little bit less clear so how is that global circumstance going to be responding to that higher North American gas price in a weak global price environment where, for instance, um, you know, Russia supply, if Russia supply start ramping quite aggressively back into Europe, Russia has been one of the you know dominant pipeline supply sources that has been kind of pushed off the stack in Europe in this low price environment thus far this summer or since the onset of COVID-19, I would say. Um, if they if there's a ramp in supply there, well, then obviously the, the European market's going to stay well supplied and maybe not have to pull on US LNG as much. And that spread is going to stay collapsed because US LNG prices will be firmer. European prices won't get that same firmness because Russia will step in with incremental supply and that keeps that spread collapsed. Right now um, for core winter, we have uh, kept in our forecast to return to more traditional spread behavior, but it is something to watch really closely because as I said, we have a huge jump in the general trend between, and we're seeing it in the curve and as well as in our forecast, between the between the spread behavior between October 2020 and November 2020. Now, how sustainable is that you know, whiplash effect on price dynamics. It is a bit of wait and see, but as I look at as I look at things right now, I see more bearish 
and downside um, relative to the curve price pressures on European gas prices, just because of the ability for Russia to potentially start coming back into the system uh, as prices start to firm. I see more, so more weakening potential within those European prices, whereas we see um, some strengthening potential, some undercurrents forming within the North American space. So that hints towards, um, you know, tighter spreads and and potentially a delay in the return to more traditional spreads that we've seen over the last couple of years. But again, it is something to watch because if European dynamics, if it's a strong winter there, if Russia supplies don't come back, then obviously you're gonna to return to a more functional spread, which would reflect um, the amount of money it takes to actually move US LNG exports into the European market. So um, definitely something to watch for as I look at things right now. I think that, you know, the, greater likelihood is for some of this uh, spread collapse to persist a little bit longer than what's currently being priced into the market. Um, but it's going to make for some very interesting dynamics through 2021. I'm going to reiterate, this is sort of uncharted territory, right? It, we haven't had the U.S. with this amount of LNG export capacity within a low price environment. And um, the, it, at least, you know, in, in the recent history. And um, before that would have been actually they were competing for regasification LNG. And so uh, this as we watch these dynamics, we're sort of kind of learning how these global gas price spreads respond to uh, these these kind of dramatic changes within the regional balances. Yeah. Yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense. And and I guess what you're saying is, that, I mean, it could could be a while before those those spreads kind of return to their traditional um you know their traditional uh averages so uh that's all really interesting and i guess what it means for your your rea is that you know obviously the global cost curve has really changed uh along with these spreads and and i think the industry will kind of need to adapt to that where we've got a much uh you know flatter cost curve now um you know with the european producers being a lot more lot more competitive so um that's that's all very interesting and, and thank you very much uh brianne yeah the one thing i'll also mention is uh and uh, this this general annual lower cost curve i think that is, that is very much something to keep in mind but there is the strong potential where we do have things such as a a return traditional spreads, for instance, in winter during peak demand periods, but then the collapse really predominantly happening within the summer months when things tend to be a little weaker. So it's, um, and I don't know whether or not that's something particularly of importance, but from the seasonal effect side of things, uh, there, there's also potential for volatility in that because of the weather dynamics that play into both the markets. Well, yeah. in the fertilizer industry, we know all about uh, weather. <laughs> weather. So we weather. definitely do not take that for granted. And how it can make or break a year. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely. So it, it looks like for the U.S., we could see in 2021 some some recovery and, and sort of towards the 350 MMBTU. But for Europe, it's it's a bit more of a question mark in that case, right? Yeah, well, right now, our TTF forecast is for, um, obviously, Europe to price at a premium to Henry Hub through through summer 2021 and, and through the entire year of 2021, to be specific. But we do actually have a return to a, re a relative collapse of the spread between the two um, in summer 2021, because what we are highlighting is that the North American market looks like it's going to be more exposed to upside price pressure to, than the European market. 
uh, in 2021. So from a spread conversation perspective, uh, we, we just think that it'll be harder to return to a sustainable dollar plus type spread because of the dynamics that'll be filtering through on both the, both sides of the Atlantic there. Uh, but you know whether or not that spread could collapse more than what's in our current forecast, that remains to be seen, but it is very different than what you're seeing on the forward curves right now. So for instance, on the forward curves, you're seeing a relative strength of the of the spread in excess of a dollar uh, through through most of 2021. Right. And um, of course, as I said, our our forecast is not the same. We actually have that spread collapsing back under 50 cents for the majority of the summer of 2021, which is very different from what the mm-hmm. current forward curve is, is indicating. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So it's no, it's interesting because, like I was saying, we are always looking at seasonality a lot um, in the in the fertilizer markets, right? So it's interesting mm. that, of course, on the gas, it's a very much a similar story. It's always a knock-on effect, right? Oil, Definitely. oil's knocking on everybody's door. Gas is knocking on someone else's. <laughs> the way it Exactly, exactly. Great. Well, thank you so much, Brianne. We really appreciate you making time uh, for us today. And I mean, at least I can say I've definitely learned a lot. (laughs) What about you, Carl? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That was that was a lot of good information. And and I appreciate your time, Brianne. My pleasure. Okay, so next, we also wanted to talk about uh, the new feature of the podcast which is the project of the month i kind of feel carl that we should have a, a cheesy jingle but um yeah yeah, yeah well, be- i would i would like a little jingle uh as well for the for the project of the month segment so um yeah, I mean, so for for this month, I think we are going to talk about the Coke Enid project. Yeah, that's right. So so basically, the idea of 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 this uh, feature is that every, I mean, it's kind of self-explanatory, I guess. It's just um, every um, every episode we will discuss a, a kind of a, a, a new project or um, a capacity expansion uh, somewhere. So like you say, we are talking about um, uh, the expansion of um, Coke's Enid plant. Um, so, Carl, I mean, what what's what are the current capacity levels there, and and what are the extra sort of plans that they have um, have in place now? Yeah, for sure. So, for anybody who doesn't know, Enid is a plant in Oklahoma in the U.S., um, kind of in that that Texas Oklahoma area where there's uh, quite a bit of gas and uh, exploration. Um, this Enid plant. Uh, was expanded in 2017 um, with an expansion of, I believe it was uh, eight or 900,000 tons. They built basically, it was 900 tons um, per year expansion. It was basically a new new line of urea was built at this plant. Um, and now they're looking to expand that, uh, basically kind of a de-bottleneck slash expansion um, of that line. That would be an increase of basically 210,000 metric tons uh, a year in terms of capacity there on a 330-day operating rate. So it's not a a huge expansion by any means, but what it does is allow Coke to upgrade more ammonia into urea from this plant. Um, Before there was a lot of excess ammonia that was sold for the, you know, mostly for the direct application market, but it was transported through the Magellan pipeline um, from Oklahoma 
all the way, the Magellan pipeline went from Oklahoma all the way up into um, Iowa and Nebraska and those kind of more corn belt traditional corn belt states where there was a lot of direct application for corn. Um, this was kind of a low cost um, option for coke to transport that, um, but but the Magellan is actually closed now. It started closing last year, um, so coke has basically been forced to you know truck all that ammonia from Oklahoma into those corn belt states that they were previously using the low cost option of the pipeline. So that's really tightened up the truck. Um, the truck market and drove up those costs as well as it's just not as efficient um, especially when you're talking about ammonia which which needs really um, specific application conditions um, mm -hmm. for it to to move so the the supply chain is always going to be stressed and um, to get those tons in the right position at the right time and and you know without the pipeline that it, it just made it even more uh, even more complex so they're going to look to expand this basically this urea production at the plant so then they don't have to truck as much ammonia should be able to get a better price for the urea as well um, because the uh, the truck rates aren't as expensive and there's just kind of a, a better you know uh, better market for for urea um, so that's kind of the plan and there's going to start construction on this in in this year later this year and they plan to have it complete by late 22 the year 2022. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So does that mean that uh, there's there's an expectation that there'll be less of a demand for direct ammonia application and that there's going to be more of a switch to? Yeah, to I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of tough. I mean, we've. The industry here has always been saying that we need to shift away from um, direct application of ammonia towards uh, the upgraded uh, nitrogen products like UAN and urea, um, but it's been slow to change, honestly. But I think this year, with the with this past year, with the Magellan closing, um, and just all those logistics troubles, and yeah, and there's just less people willing to distribute it. Now there's you know there's obviously less people willing to produce it as well. So I think the grower will will kind of have to change some of their um, you know their basically their fertilizer practices to. Um, kind of more efficient methods because um, otherwise you know basically what it's, what's going to happen is the cost of ammonia is going to get you know drive drive up and it won't be as efficient from a grower perspective to be applying ammonia when you could apply the same amount of nitrogen for much cheaper via um, urea or UAN. Yeah that makes sense because you don't have the extra cost that include you know involved with the logistics on the ammonia side, right? Especially if you don't have that pipeline running. Um, so in terms of the um, extra capacity, I mean, how much of that will be for fertilizer use and how much do you think will be for industrial use? Yeah, I guess I don't really know exactly. Um, in their permit, Coke also said they were going to expand their DEF production or you know, basically add blue um, diesel exhaust fluid. Um, they're going to expand their DEF production there as well. So they, some of this will for sure be going to industrial use. Um, I just don't know exactly how the math will pencil out. I suppose it'll depend on, um, you know, the market conditions for, for each product. I suppose they can kind of change back and forth a little bit between the two anyways. So um, it'll it'll depend, but I would definitely expect some to be going to industrial use. 
Um, and you know, Coke also has their Super U uh, product, which they produce at Enid as as well, um, which goes for you know ag purposes. Uh, it's it's used as a ag fertilizer, but it doesn't trade like urea does. Um, so they also have that option as well. Okay, and I, I guess I mean considering the location in uh, in Oklahoma, that it would be only domestic market, right? Um, so would you, on the back of this, um, expect a reduction in imports? I mean, in general, also if, of course the U.S. Uh, is still a location where it kind of makes sense, right, to invest in in new urea projects. I mean, how do you see the sort of outlook for U.S. imports um, for the coming years? Yeah, I think it definitely reduces um, the import um, need. Uh, like I said, it's only a 200,000 ton a year uh, expansion, so it's not it's not huge, no. but it's definitely showing that um, you know uh, producers in North America are trying to um, you know capitalize on the low gas costs and expand production where it's you know profitable to do so it's still not really translating into new uh, greenfield projects but um, it definitely shows that um, it's still there's still the desire to increase urea production domestically because we still rely on the import market quite a bit obviously so um, definitely think it'll it'll impact the import urea demand um, and it just continue to show you know that uh, now I'm just going to say what I already said but it'll just continue to show that uh, North America is a kind of a profitable or a good location to look at investing in new capacity. Yeah and I would think also the Greenfield projects is always um of course, much more high risk. Um, all you need, all the investment and everything, um, and especially considering the um, global urea market. I mean, there's a, a lot of new capacity has come on stream, right? And in quite low cost countries that, like Nigeria, what we're, what we're seeing um, that's going to be added in the next few years. So, I mean, that's always, of course, a question mark um, if it's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's probably a little bit too expensive to get those EPC contracts here in the States with the kind of the labor market as tight as it is or has been. Um, Definitely. Yeah, and as you said, Nigeria is still a much cheaper location, so. Definitely. Well, thanks, Carl. That's uh, that's uh, really interesting. It's uh, I'll be already looking forward to whatever project we will be Looking at next time, right? We'll have to do a bit, little, little bit of a, I don't know, find a way what the best way is to choose. Yeah, them. well, there's plenty of them, but we'll try to highlight ones that are uh, kind of relevant to, to whatever's going on in the market. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. And if anyone listening has any, you know, burning uh, desire to uh, to give us a suggestion for the next project and let us know and uh, and we'll, we'll try and answer those questions and, and figure out what the expectation is on the on the impact of the market so thanks everyone I mean um, yeah um, as usual you know um, subscribe to the podcast we're on Apple podcasts we're on Google podcasts um, you can find us by just typing in uh, Ferticon IHS market or urea never sleeps uh, that's some ways to to find us right yeah absolutely and make sure to to like and subscribe we'll try to keep you as updated as we can on these uh, crazy urea markets definitely always uh, 
never boring, I always say, right? Always something going on. Never sleeps. So, exactly. all right. Thanks, Alfie. Cheers, Carl. Yep. Bye. Bye. For more information about Verticon and I Just Market, visit the link in the show description. Thank you for listening.